Welcome to the OSHA for Teens podcast, a show where I team up with a thought leader and we discuss a new topic question that will help you better understand your teen. I'm your host, Mark Tucker, co-author of OSHA for Teens, as well as the OSHA for Teens curriculum and the OSHA for Teens workshop kit, which is being used by facilitators everywhere. Head to OSHIFT.com and join the growing movement of shift heads all across the world. Thanks so much for joining me. Got a great show for you today. We've been having a lot of great shows uh, around topic questions that I hope are helping you as you work with teens or are parent to teens. A few things I want to bring up for those of you who only listen to the podcast. You can go to the website and you can do all kinds of things like download Jen's best-selling copy of O-Shift for absolutely free. This was something we um, started about a year plus ago to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to uh, join the movement, to read that amazing book that's been changing lives all over the world. Now, you can do it too. Just head to oshift.com, download the book. You can tell your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones, people you like, people you don't like. Do that today if you haven't already. The second thing is that Jen and I, we uh, do a weekly audio blog, uh, which is just, uh, it's a little shorter than this. It's usually about 10 minutes long. And that's a chance for Jen and I just to share with you things that are going on with us that we think are probably going on for you as well. It's pretty fun. It's something we really like to do. And then finally, of course, uh, there's plenty of ways for you to get involved in the O-Shift movement. Uh, you can become a facilitator. Um, we've got facilitators who put on workshops and earn money doing it. Uh, some people use our material within the organizations they work with. Uh, we've got a, a school curriculum. We've got an after-school program called the O-Shift for Teens Workshop Kit or the O-Shift Workshop Kit, which you can become a facilitator. So it's like having super powerful material that you didn't have to write and you, you become a superstar right away. Uh, go check it out. Or if you have questions about it, then you can even email us at info at OSHIFT.com and we'll answer your questions and make sure that you have success as you get started on that journey. Well, we've got a great show today. I'm being joined by Dr. Melissa Sickman. She is the director for the National Center for Juvenile Justice. Had a real interesting conversation with her a while ago. Um, our topic was, when do you become an adult? And of course, she's got an angle on it that I hadn't been thinking of, which is just legally and uh, some of the things that you want to know uh, to be able to tell your teen uh, to be thoughtful of as they approach that legal age, depending on the state you're living in. So let's get right to it. This is me and Dr. Melissa Sickmund just a little while ago. My guest today is Dr. Melissa Sickmund. Dr. Sickmund joined the National Center for Juvenile Justice in 1986 and has been at its helm since 2012. Her work at the NCJJ has had the goal of improving juvenile justice statistical information and facilitating the use of data to support decision-making at the national and local levels. Dr. Sickman oversees NCJJ's work on several national data efforts, and she's best known for the Juvenile Offenders and Victims Publication Series. Dr. Sickman, how are you? I'm well today. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you so much. I know that you are super busy, but uh, you've taken the time to be here with me today and our listeners. I'm always uh, happy to talk to folks who have any interest in juvenile justice and all the reforms that are going on nationwide. Yeah, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that because, you know, many of the folks that listen to this podcast 
um, are from that world. Not all of them, because you know this is for parents of teens as well. But when some people hear about gathering data, their eyes sort of glaze over. It sounds like challenging work. What kind of data is it that you're uh, accumulating? All different sorts, and maybe it's less scary if we just say information. Since uh, since our existence. Pretty much uh, 1975, we began leading what's called the National Juvenile Court Data Archive. Uh, We collect actual case records in an automated way from juvenile courts all around the country. We use that information then to put out uh, national estimates of how many cases there are, what those kids look like, their demographics, what their charges were, how the court handled them, what the dispositions uh, were, what the court decided to do with them, put them on probation or placement out of the home, fines, fees, all that kind of stuff. Well, I want to ask you about that, but for starters, who is it that's asking for all this information? I mean, why, why is it important to have all of this information gathered? Well, I, it's certainly important for people that work in the field. But we know that our information has been used up and down uh, the spectrum of just people in this country. We've had the White House use our information, the Justice Department, you know, at the federal level. We handle and respond to information requests from folks that are in state legislatures or that operate state agencies. Our organization is the research division of a judicial membership organization, so judges all around the country that function in juvenile and family courts need to know, you know, what's going on nationally to put their own experience in perspective. Okay, well, and that's interesting. So it sounds like there's a difference between the data that's, or the information that's being gathered for uh, juveniles than adults. I mean, is that the case? And, and I mean, is, are things more sensitive when you're, when you're uh, a juvenile? Yes, yes. I mean, there's the, the, the notion, and I think a lot of the reforms of late, juvenile justice, juvenile courts were established in this country more than 100 years ago. And the notion was that kids are different from adults. They're not just short adults. So a separate system was created, and confidentiality and sort of privacy for the individual child has always been kind of a part of the system, not sort of a founding principle. But that doesn't mean that data on how the system works as a whole can't be made public. Kids who go through juvenile courts, generally their experiences would be different than if they were be in an adult case in criminal court just the media's access to who their identities may be less. You know, there is a lot of effort to protect the kids from silly mistakes that kids make. We don't want what children do when they are children to affect them the rest of their lives in a negative way. Is that because we believe that they are more reformable than adults? They have a better chance at changing their ways? Yeah, I mean, I think juvenile justice, again, was sort of founded on that idea. But of late, there's been a lot of really cool science on how brains develop. And so you'll hear people talk about adolescent brain development and the science associated with it. And now, because we're smarter about that kind of stuff, we can see that children's brains are not finished developing that it, you know, many individuals' brains don't get finished developing until they're in their mid-20s. 
thing is that the parts of the brain that are slowest to develop are the parts that control planning, decision-making, things that are associated with making bad decisions and doing dumb things as, as, you know, as a kid. And so the, the idea that, yes, kids should be held responsible for the law violations that they do, but in a different way that some of the things that the system has done historically with kids may actually cause more harm than good. And yeah. so, you know, there's reforms taking place all over the country that are trying to really be smarter about juvenile justice. It's not, you know, being tough or soft. It's being smart. And if you create a system that's smarter, in theory, you should have better outcomes and yeah. at lower cost. And that's what, you know, citizens want. They want to have safe communities and not spend a ton of tax dollars to pay for a justice system. Right. You know, you know, a couple of things that you said that I think really helps uh, parents and folks that are working with teens is that concept is that our children's brains are continuing to develop up into their 20s. Um, I know that that's becoming more prevalent now, but for those of us out in the, the rank and file, it's like, oh, well, that kind of explains a lot. You know, they're finding in, in adolescence that brain development is, is almost as profound as when, when they're two and three years old. So I think that helps us a little bit to understand them a little better and to maybe tolerate them and to provide supports that are more maybe appropriate for their age range. I was going to say a lot of states have uh, put in place juvenile justice systems. You know, the laws actually will have like a purpose clause and the purpose clause will have language or sort of a, a philosophy or an approach that we call balanced and restorative justice, which is that you have to have balance between rehabilitative goals, community protection goals, and accountability to victims in the community. All three of those things should exist in your system in balance, and that, that kind of takes into account kids are different, uh, but they still need to be held accountable for the things that they do. The community protection part is really kind of where punishment gets placed, um, but the accountability to victims and to the community is really, you know, kids need to acknowledge when they've made mistakes and need to try to make reparation for those things. Restorative justice principles are very powerful. They help individuals involved in the system, either as offenders or as victims, have trust and faith in the system, which is also really important. I think right now in our country there's been some erosion of that where people yeah. are not trustful that the system is fair. So employing restorative justice principles kind of helps with that. We were recently, well, this was about a year ago, contacted by a couple of professors from Portland State University, which is the big uh, university here in Portland. They contacted us about uh, using our O-Shift for Teens workshop kit uh, because what they were trying to do is find programs that help specifically to decrease recidivism, which, of course, for mm -hmm. those of you out, listeners out there, is trying to get people to not to go back to jail. Now, is, is that sort of emphasis part of the reforms that you were talking about, that emphasis to just try a new system because we got too many people being incarcerated, well, kids too? Yeah, the, um, let me just stop you there on a couple of different levels. So the, the term jail is an adult term. Juveniles under federal law are not supposed to be held in adult jail facilities. There's 
separate facilities for juveniles that might be referred to as detention centers or training schools. They go by lots of different names. The notion of trying to reduce recidivism, recidivism is a very complex concept and it's also very simple. I try to not use that word because one, it's hard to say and people start <laughs> arguing about definitions um, because the definitions really make a difference in what the numbers are. But Rather, we prefer to talk about subsequent offending. So whatever, whatever point the kid is in the system, are, are they coming back to the system again? Subsequent offending and recidivism measures always are relying on kind of official data, the kind of stuff that we collect. But we realize that kids do a lot of things that may be violations of law for which they never get caught. So any measure of subsequent offending is almost a given that it's an undercount of things. But you know, the, the goal of the system is to have put kids, you know, kids come into the system and you want to put them out in a in a way that they will not return to the system, to leave them at least no worse off than they were and hopefully better off. We know that a lot of kids that come into the justice system have been exposed to various sorts of trauma in their lives. And so if the system itself is then traumatizing also, because it's kind of scary to be in trouble with the law. There are things that, the, that system actors can do to minimize those effects. There's great interest, and I think that's probably always been there, you know, in, in doing things that will work to reduce the chances that a kid comes back into trouble again. And the difference nowadays is that we say, hey, you actually have to collect data. You can't just tell me your program works because you think it does, because it feels good to you as a provider of services. Oh, I'm talking to these kids and they like it, but you need to prove it. You need to prove that yeah. it works. So there's a growing body of evidence folks at Portland State and other places around the country do research on programs that's, you know, that's pretty rigorous to show that these treatment services are having their intended effect. And nowadays there's a much more attention paid to our things evidence-based. Yeah, I can so, tell you that you know, when, when Jen and I are at, a, at various conferences, the question of you know, is your program evidence-based, you know, it's, it's more and more, and of course what you've just described, it really makes a lot of sense. Um, and so, so that's obviously a good thing. I do want to get to our, our topic question. Now, each <laughs> week I send, I, I send our, the guests that are going to be on the show a list of potential questions. Dr. Sickman, you chose uh, when do you become an adult? I thought, it was, I thought it was funny because when I originally wrote that question on my list, in my mind I was thinking well, this would be a great conversation about kind of the, like the societal rights of passages. I mean, when do we become an, an adult in my own experience? But I'm guessing that when you picked that, you had kind of a different angle on why that's an important question. What were you thinking? Well, because uh, we keep track of state laws of when children get handled as adults in criminal court for law violations. Um, right. In most states in the country, when children turn 18, so when they have their 18th birthday and they go out and do something stupid, they're going to be handled as an adult. 
Um, but that's not true in all states. So there's uh, New York and North Carolina that when kids turn 16, they are an adult. Oh. So any new crimes they commit, they're, they're still in high school, but they're an adult. I'm hoping that kids who live in those states know what those age limits are, but kids who move or travel, you know, go on vacation or whatever, may need to, uh, <laughs> to just stop and think for a minute. You know, if you think that you're, oh, I'm not going to get in much trouble if I do X, Y, and Z, um, you know, that may or may not be the case. Okay, so let me ask you this. Why do they need to know that? I mean, what's important for them to know what the age that they become an adult is? Because things matter a lot in terms of how the system will handle their cases, how sort of the long-term collateral consequences of that bad behavior. If you have a juvenile record in many places when you want to go to college or whatever, Forms may ask, have you been convicted of a crime? But as a juvenile, you are not convicted of a crime. You're adjudicated delinquent. So, no, you don't have that criminal history that you would need to be reported perhaps to employers or whatever. Juvenile justice gives you that, that opportunity to make mistakes and not have them ruin the rest of your life. But when you're yeah. an adult, even if you do a very childish thing, you're an adult and you're going to criminal court and you can go into a jail facility and if you are if what you did was actually considered to be a felony in your state you can go to prison and that could be for a long long time knowing what the age is for your state i it sounds like it's very important regardless of you know, just to know because you you're going to be treated differently so let me ask you this once i've figured it out once i've determined say it's 18 in oregon What's the conversation that I need to have with my kids? And I think this is, this is something that a lot of listeners, are, their ears are going to perk up for. What's the conversation I need to have with my kids as they're approaching that age? What do they need to be aware of? What do I need to be communicating with them so they are aware? I mean, you know, we know that kids' brains aren't fully developed, and we know that part of it is that they don't think about the consequences of their behavior. It's fun. They just do it. Or they might even think that, oh, if I get caught, something bad will happen, but then they don't think accurately about the chances of getting caught. If you just talk with kids about what the brain development science says about their brains, they are very interested in it because it's about them, sort of gives them an opportunity to kind of practice the more you're aware of something and that this is a likely mistake that you're going to make. And if you Think about it just for a half second, maybe you can prevent making that mistake. Right. The just say no approach to drugs wasn't maybe completely as effective as, you know, it sounds very simple, but there is some, some evidence that shows that rehearsing and practicing avoiding bad things will, you know, it is a useful strategy. So when kids are yeah. little, we teach them about crossing the street, looking both ways, all those things, and we have them practice those behaviors, giving older teens an opportunity to practice saying, I don't want to do this bad thing, to, you know, give the, teaching them what are ways that they can avoid peer pressure, teaching them how they can avoid making bad decisions. What are their goals for their future? If you want to go to college, you know, you really need to think about your behavior because 
some things may have an impact. Just because the, the age for becoming uh, an adult for the purposes of criminal prosecution is 18, that doesn't mean that anything you do as a kid uh, is going to, you know, you're going to get a, a pass. You know, if you do something serious, Every state has mechanisms where even though you are a juvenile for juvenile justice purposes, there's, you commit certain offenses at a certain age, they can still put you over to criminal court. And some states, there's no minimum age for that kind of thing. It's fascinating stuff. I want to back up real quick to something that you, you were saying before, which was, uh, and I think that a lot of our listeners can really get a lot out of it, is that idea of sort of visualizing, that conversation that you have is sort of visualizing what you do in those situations where you know you're going to be in, you know, and, and I, I was just doing this yesterday uh, with my son at parent-teacher conferences who was having trouble with his organization turning assignments in. It's like, well, when could you check your assignment list online? It's like, well, I guess I could do that Saturday or Sunday. It's like, well, which, which, which would be better? Giving them sort of a roadmap for the inevitability of being in that situation so that they can be successful at it. So I, I, think, it's a, I think it's a great tip to be able to talk to, to kids about these situations, the, the legalities, the rules as they exist, how things are changing for them as they're becoming an adult, and then actually talking through when you're in those situations. And they vary depending on, you know, if, if you're being exposed to gangs or if you're simply uh, trying to get your kid to turn in your homework, sort of giving them a roadmap so that they can be like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Sunday, yeah. you well, know, whatever. And I, think, and I think, too, you know, for parents to be able to support your kids you know that kids are not going to be perfect. Perfection, you know, great to strive for it, but nobody achieves it. So to let your kids have that experience of, of kind of failure, of making mistakes and not having the world fall apart and then having that be part of, you know, training to how to avoid making that same mistake in the future, um, there's a lot of things that, kids do that are, you know, rule violations at home. And I think parents can, can maybe learn a little bit from, from justice system approaches from some of the better places, you know, in terms of the notion of what's called graduated sanctions. Yeah, the first time a kid makes a mistake, the punishment is not going to be severe. But again, we want them to acknowledge that they've made a mistake, to be held accountable, to consider, you know, why the rule exists and how they can avoid making that mistake again. But if they yes. keep making the same mistake, you know, things have to kind of ratchet up a little bit. The other thing I think, you know, you mentioned gang stuff. You know, there are a lot of folks in, in this world that live in places that are not super safe, that there are risks and, and things. And parents can perhaps figure out ways that their kids can navigate those dangerous environments in ways that are not violating the law. And that, that requires parents to know a lot about the environment. Unfortunately, folks that have lower incomes that are forced to have sort of what I would call, you know, maybe unstable housing environments, they might have to move multiple times. And that makes it hard for the parents and the kids to know their environments well. What are the safe places to go? What are the safe pathways? Who are the safe people? But it's really worth it. You have to go into a new community, a new neighborhood, to take a day or two and try to find those things out because 
kids that, you know, that have less familiarity with their communities, with their neighborhoods, are more apt not only to be victims of crime, but also to be offenders. And that's where parents' interactions with schools, if they can, you know, carve out a little bit of time to have, you know, to have a conversation like that with the school, because the school's been there, so they may be able to educate the parent and the child about how to navigate your world in a safe way. There's also things I think that parents do that, you know, I hate to to say this out loud, but, you know, when your kid does something wrong and you kind of know it but you're not 100% sure, what do you say to your kid? We often say, tell me the truth and I'll go easy, right? Tell me you want your child to be truthful to you, but when it comes to if you think your kid did something really serious that can get them in serious trouble with the law, you do not want to speak those words. (laughs) And you want to teach kids about, I mean, about their rights and responsibilities under the law. So we've been talking mostly about kind of responsibilities, but rights. Things like Miranda, we see it on TV. You have the right to remain silent, but people don't really understand what that is and don't understand how to have it come true for them. You have the right to remain silent, but you actually have to shut up, which means when the cops <laughs> or the principal, the school resource yeah. officer, when they tell you, tell me the truth and I'll go easy on you, guess what? They're allowed to lie to you. Yeah. <laughs> so the tell me the truth part, you're telling them the truth, and then they don't actually have to go easy on you. So there have been cases, I can recall a case, I think in Maine or someplace, where the parents, if they thought their kid had done, had committed a homicide, they t- tell me the truth. The kid tells the parents the truth. They take the kid to the to the cops, and then they are called to testify against their child. You, I don't have to testify against my husband, but there's nothing to say that I can't testify against my kid and be called to. You think if there's any chance that your kid actually did something or might be charged with something really serious, the very first thing you need to do is get an attorney. Well, Dr. Sigmund, it has been fascinating talking to you. I, you brought up so many uh, really interesting uh, points for, uh, I think, parents and teen advocates to consider. Where, where do people go to find out more about what you're doing, or is, is that something that you'd like to get out there? Oh, definitely. Uh, so our website is simple. It's ncjj.org for National Center for Juvenile Justice, ORG, because we're a nonprofit. Uh, on our website, uh, there's a section called Quick Links where you can get links to these other websites that we have developed. Dr. Sigmund, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. People need to if they need to call for information, our contact information is on our website. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. That, of course, was an interview that I had a little while ago with Dr. Melissa Sickmund. Uh, great information for those of you who have teens and that are wondering what are you going to tell them as they reach uh, that magical age of adulthood. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Join us again next week where we'll have another amazing episode for you. Um, Until then, head over to OShift.com and see the ways that you can get involved in the OShift worldwide movement. Until then, thanks for joining. Talk soon.